The Athletic. It's straight out of Cobham, a show about Chelsea Football Club from The Athletic. Today, five in five for the Blues as Kepa keeps keeping clean sheets. Mason Mounts at the double at Villa Park. CFCW sent Emma Hayes a get-well present. And we assess how Chelsea can draw the sting from the bees. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts. And ad-free on The Athletic, this is Straight out of Cobham. Here we are then, listener. I wonder if producer Lucy's going to call this episode Graham Potter and the case of the redemption of the Spaniard or something like that because it was all about Kepa on Sunday at Villa Park, wasn't it? A winning weekend for the men's and women's teams. It means it's a happy Monday for those with blue blood. On the panel today, meet Matt Davis-Adams. I'm joined by The Athletics' Dominic Fifield. How are you doing, Dom? Good morning, Matt. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, Sam threw a bit of shade your way during the quiz on Thursday after oh, yeah. his victory. Um, it feels like people are coming for you. Well, it. Sam won the quiz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, <laughs> you're seen as the form horse and yeah, people are pretty keen to knock you off your perch. So just uh, keep you on your toes a bit. Can you knock a horse off its perch? <laughs> well, it'd be a big perch, but I don't know. Tweeters, maybe not. Um, Jesse Parker Humphreys is also with us. Get me out of this hole that I'm digging for myself, Jesse. Okay. I'm stuck on this image now of a horse on a perch. <laughs> it's not a pleasant image, I think. Not in my case, anyway. What a Monday morning start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing that defines how big a perch should be. So I think it's feasible. I'm imagining like one of those things like you'd get a parrot to stand on or something. That like is that. a traditional perch, right, yeah. yes. I just wanted yes. to check. <laughs> it's a pretty big cage and you wouldn't hang it from a ceiling would you or it could be a tiny horse or it could yeah. be a tiny horse yeah, yeah. Shetland Jose pony Mourinho on a perch <laughs> well, I think we've digressed here already yeah hopefully none of this makes the edit um, <laughs> let's roll on quickly shall we we'll start with Sunday's win in the West Midlands Man tries his luck again oh that is magnificent the angle he got on that Quite superb. Martinez could do nothing about it. Mount scores and Villa have a mountain to climb. Watkins pulls it back. McGinn straight at the goalkeeper. And he saves the follow-up as well from Ramsey. And somehow Chelsea's goal survives. Ings, what a save. That is an incredible stop from a goalkeeper who's at the top of his game. Uh, a world-class performance, I think, um, first half especially. Um, big saves when you need the goalkeeper, especially here, you need to, you need to, he needs to come and he did. So really pleased for him, he's had a, you know, he's had a, a tough period at times here, but uh, he contributed to the points today. Aston Villa nil, Chelsea two. Then the Blues ahead early through Mason Mount. They somehow held on to the lead until half time before Mount added a second midway through the second period. Liam and I were there. Only one of us was fastidious enough to send a voice note. Let's hear that now. So the Chelsea fans opposite me are not over analysing this. As you can probably hear, they're serenading Thiago Silva. All the Chelsea players have gone over to recognise them at the final whistle. The rest of the stadium was emptying. Well before uh, the end, I think pretty much from the moment Mason Mount curled in that brilliant free kick to make sure of Chelsea's win. Probably the strangest win of Graham Potter's tenure so far. Chelsea were incredibly lucky in the first half to go in at 1-0. I think it was probably the most misleading scoreline of the season. 
As you can hear now, Kepper is getting a massive roar, massive support, pumping his fist at the travelling Chelsea fans. I don't know if they've come up with a chant for Ariza Balaga yet, but he's getting plenty of adulation, which is completely deserved. He was absolutely sensational in that first half, making at least two saves. I think one from Ramsey, which he tipped onto the post, and then another tipped over the bar, um, a header, which he had no right to make to keep Chelsea in front. And then I think to Potter's credit, he realised that he got the starting tactics wrong. His, uh, sorry, Graham Potter's just giving an ecstatic hug to a smiling Kepper in front of me. I think to Potter's credit, he realised he got the tactics wrong long before half-time. He, the sort of reverse Salzburg ploy of playing Sterling as a nominal right wing back who they were hoping would be a winger for most of the game did not work. Uh, he was made to do a lot of defending, defending which he's not very good at. Ollie Watkins deliberately targeted the space behind him. Trevor Chalobah had a lot of trouble dealing with him. And Villa got in time and again down that side. But Potter moved Sterling forward before half-time, moved Loftus-Cheek into that spot. And then at half-time, brought on the defensive cavalry with Koulibaly and Azpilicueta. Um, and that did seem to steady things, as did Jorginho coming on. But Chelsea were still very lucky to come out of here with three points. They had Mason Mount's first goals of the season to thank. He was absolutely brilliant. The other star from a Chelsea perspective. And the momentum's maintained. This is a fifth win in a row, a fourth clean sheet on the spin. Even if it didn't look like that at the time. And uh, it's onwards and upwards for Potter. Uh, Liam said, Dom that 1-0 at halftime was the most misleading scoreline of the season. <laughs> I think that's probably fair enough. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, Kepa kept them in it remarkably. They, I, I've, it's very rare that to see a, a, a Chelsea backline look quite so ragged. And and Cucurella, whose who's, who's Chelsea career is, has been pretty impressive today, just really, really struggled at that in his centre-half duties. They, they lacked a... Uh, sort of comfort in their in their shape. They seem to be labouring all over the pitch, and 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 Villa were the sprightly team. They were the team that were creating the chances and and clear cut chances as well. The, the the two saves in particular that Kepper made, one down low to his right, turning the ball onto a post, and and the the header from uh, Danny Ings was was absolutely sensational. To keep that out, I mean, he had absolutely no right to do that. And yeah, it was it was nice to see. The redemption as you as you build it it's he's been very very consistent starting all of the games under Potter and that really showcased all the qualities that, that made him so appealing to Chelsea when they they forked out such a large sum to, to bring him to the club a few years ago uh, here's a message from producer Lucy's dad who said kept us in the game you have to use that pun or a derivative of the same for SOC I made that up all on my own there you go Mr Reliever consider it <laughs> um, Jesse it was pretty extraordinary right Kepper is the subject of Liam's post-match piece by the way you can read that up on The Athletic now athletic.com slash Chelsea pod the place to go to sign up if you want a subscriber it'll only cost you a pound a month for the first six months um, it is Jesse really genuinely quite heartening I think to see somebody overcome something like this especially in you know such a public forum in in the most difficult position on the pitch, I would argue, if, if you've you know been as out of form as Kepa was, to come back, it, that takes a lot of mental strength. Yeah, I don't think anyone would have been surprised if we'd kind of never really seen Kepa get anywhere near a starting position at, at Chelsea ever again. 
But I think what's interesting as well is, on the one hand, this kind of feels like a bolt from the blue and it's a bit like, where did this goalkeeper spring from? But on the other hand, when you look at his performances in the Cups last season, there has been a kind of slower trend, I think, of him seeming to get more confidence and form. It's just that with Mendy in better form, with him clearly being Tuchel's first choice, we never kind of saw that taken into into the Premier League or into a more regular set of games. But at the same time, the other thing that's interesting to think about is obviously Graham Potter brought an extra goalkeeping coach with him. And I don't know how much difference a goalkeeping coach can make over four weeks or so. But I guess that's another thing that's interesting to, to think about, you know, what impact has Ben Roberts maybe been able to have how has he assessed both goalkeepers differently because obviously there has been an assessment and a decision whether that's based on their pure qualities or simply Mendy's form as it was because you know we all know he was having a bit of a mare but yeah it's fantastic Kepa just seems like such a lovely guy as well so I just think it's a really yeah heartening is is the word right I think we've we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the fringe players under the previous regime and said that when their opportunity comes, on the rare occasions they're offered a chance in the side, they have to seize it. We've said it for a, a lot of the attacking players in that in that lineup, but I think Kepper is a prime example of someone who's just done that. I mean, Mendy's absence through the, the patella tendon issue that, that at around the time of Potter's appointment offered him that that chance in the side, and he's justified his his selection every every match since really. I think it's there's an irony that it's that we're discussing all this and and Kepa's excellence ahead of a game at Brentford in midweek because I mean, that was the match that Mendy demonstrated last year just how outstanding he is a world class goalkeeper some of the saves he made there defy belief but it's unthinkable at the moment that Kepa won't start that game um, on on Wednesday night it's funny also with. I was thinking that when, when Potter was at Brighton, he, he inherited a team. I'm pretty sure that Matt Ryan was the first choice goalkeeper at Brighton. And he wasn't afraid to make a change there. Uh, he brought someone in that he felt suited the style of football that he wanted. And I think, uh, you know, maybe Andy Naylor, the Athletics Brighton correspondent, would correct me. But I'm I'm pretty sure Matt Ryan was a bit of a Brighton favourite. He was a bit of a stalwart under Chris Hewton in establishing that team in the Premier League in those first couple of years at the, in the top division. And... And yet he was out and and gone, and and Sanchez really took his place. And m- maybe we're seeing that again here with Kepper to prove Matt's uh, prediction at the start of last season spot on. I wasn't going to mention it, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> I was right. Um, so Kepper kept his place for Villa. There were three changes from the team that started in Milan. Kukurea came in for Koulibaly, Loftus Cheek for Reese James and Havertz for Jorginho. The Reese James news, Jesse, broke after we'd recorded Thursday's pod. Eight weeks minimum, a knee brace for four of those. Obviously, it's not great for Gareth Southgate, but he's been Chelsea's best player this season, hasn't he? I think we can we can say with some certainty after yesterday that having Raheem Sterling as a, a false wing-back is, is not something that we really want to see again. But but this is a big blow for, for Graham Potter in Chelsea's season to be without James for so long. I'm sure every football fan feels like this, but just with Chelsea at the moment, you just feel like as soon as one thing starts going well, you know, you get a new manager and you have a couple of wins and then it's like, oh, but the, the guy who was like the real best player and was really leading all that, now you can't have him anymore. On top of the fact that we spent, you know, the past three months doing discourse about who will play right back for England and it will probably end up being Alexander-Arnold just by default at this point in time, given everyone else <laughs> is injured. But yeah, Raheem Sterling, that was 
that was not the one. And I think not only do you lose Reese James's just technical ability going forward defensively, but I think you also have to think about Trevor Chalobah as well as that right side of the centre-back who I think is a very talented defender, but has also been used to playing with James or Azpilicueta. And I think when you were suddenly switching out and putting someone totally different there, it felt to me like there was a bit more anxiety between the both of them around, you know, who was doing what and, and who was coming back. And, you know, I mean, the, the moment that stood out for me was when Ashley Young nutmegged Raheem Sterling, like on the edge of the area. And I was like, this is just, this is not it. Like, this is not what you should be seeing 37 year old Ashley Young, like having to be like slightly bodied off the ball so he can't run into your area. Um, but yeah, and it is a problem because not only is Reese James, you know, I think the one Chelsea player who would clearly walk into almost any side in the world, there's almost like no one you can use regularly behind him because Azpilicueta, I think, has had some good games under Potter, but clearly can't play the amount of games that Chelsea have to realistically. And everyone else, you're kind of just looking at, at fitting in there. You know, you obviously Ruben played there for what, like kind of 10 minutes at the end of the first half, but we've all been talking about what a revelation he is in midfield. So we don't want to suddenly be playing him at wing back. So I, I genuinely don't really know what, what the answer is there for Potter. Mm, and, and it's an interesting one, Dom, as well, I think, for how Chelsea manage it, because the tweet that Rhys James put out on Sunday kind of intimated that he's going to try and get back for the World Cup. You want to keep your player happy. And obviously that, that could be a potentially huge thing in his career. But at, at the same time, Chelsea's first interest has got to be his availability for Chelsea going forward for the for the rest of the season. So it's it's a delicate balance for the medical team, isn't it? You, I guess you've kind of got to say to him, look, it's not that likely you're going to make the World Cup. We will try and help you, but we've got to think long term as well as short term. Yes, uh, you're right, and and um, but I'm sure the medical staff will make that clear to Reese James, and it's good for him to have the ambition and the target to try and be, try and be available for for England. But I mean, given the what sounds like the serious nature of the injury and and the very fact that he's going to be in a brace for four weeks, does make that highly highly unlikely. Not least with the fact that, you know, if you're Gareth Southgate, you've already got Carl Walker who's gone under the knife um, recently on a groin problem. Now Reese James is is injured potentially for for eight weeks, and and you, you've got other injury worries as well that have, that have knock on effects in that area of the pitch. Not not least, you know, is Calvin Phillips going to be fit, having hardly played for Manchester City all season? So actually, is he likely to take three players who've barely played any football for the last two months and whose fitness may be in doubt to Qatar? Probably not, even in the twenty six man squad. And realistically, it sounds as if James is going to be the the one who's least fit at the start of that tournament. So I think at some point, realisation will probably dawn on everybody, on on James in particular in his camp, that that it's not going to happen. It's unbelievably unfortunate. Heart goes out to him because, I mean, these opportunities to play in, in World Cups just don't come around very often. And, and, and it's, he probably would have been first choice in that England team, either as a right-sided centre-half or, or as a right-wing back. And it's, yeah, it's very, very, very cruel for this to happen at this stage. Uh, well, two of Southgate's other soldiers were involved in the first goal on Sunday. Is Villa defender Tyrone's surname the clearest example of nominative determinism we've ever had in the Premier League? Um, quite possibly. His whiffy header allowed Mason Mount to get his first goal of the season. That's been coming, right, Jesse? He's been so close for the last few games. You just felt like it, it was going to be his moment in this game or fairly soon, if not. 
Yeah, and a fantastic finish as well. I know the the Ming's header was was bad, but to take that kind of first time, I I don't think I'd have sat there if he'd missed it and thought, oh god, like how annoying, what a miss. And it just feels like he's totally rejuvenated as a as a player under Potter. And I guess maybe that was always the sign that like it had really gone wrong for Tuchel when you've got a player like Mason Mount who seems to have just kind of dropped off and, and looked a bit more disinterested. Um, and yeah, I mean, the kind of stats that were coming out like around his goals, you know, having scored the same as Lampard after their first 170 whatever it was games, you know, youngest player since Hazard to get to 25 Premier League goals for Chelsea. I think, you know, we do kind of maybe forget because he has become such an established member in the team how young he still is and and how much he's already achieved at that age and to so consistently under what three different managers now immediately be the first choice you know the only outfield player that Potter's used for for all of his games it's it's incredible how much trust he obviously from all of his managers Southgate as well right like are willing to place in him and he's an example of a player whose loans work perfectly for them. We've seen that not happen with quite a few Chelsea players, but first Vitesse and then Derby really helped develop him, I think. Um, Don, was it a brilliant free kick or, or did Martinez make a meal of it? I can't quite decide. I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. I think he got deceived by the the swerve on it. His positioning seems a bit wrong. He obviously takes the two steps to his right and the ball arcs over his, his left shoulder. Um, so not 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 great goalkeeping, but... But a lovely finish, nevertheless. I mean, it, it looked a long way out. It looked an un- unlikely free kick to to be taking a direct shot at goal that would be successful. But he he executed it perfectly. I think we should also say that along with the loans, he is a player that, like Reese James, to a certain extent, really benefited from the situation at Chelsea. I mean, the FIFA transfer ban, etc., and and working with Lampard initially, and that that gave him that little run in the team that that probably convinced him that 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 he was ready to play at that level but he has been outstanding and and yeah I mean, and again it's good management because you know midweek he comes off at half time to keep him fresh for what proved rightly to be a very tricky test at Villa Park and you wouldn't have fancied Chelsea to to have got much from that from that game at the weekend had Mount not been at it from the start so good management again just to get him off the pitch in San Siro just to to be ready for the weekend Speaking of good management, Jesse, if a coach has to make two changes because his team are getting absolutely battered at, at half time, are you of the the belief that that is good management that he spots the problem and solves it, or or is it well he should have spotted it in the first place? I mean, it's it's a new thing for Potter, isn't it, to come off the back of a Champions League game and then a couple of days later go to a Premier League game. So we've got to remember that that he's kind of evolving and, and learning on the job. Yeah, listen, I'd always prefer my manager to kind of put their ego to the side and make the changes rather than just pretend it's not happening, which you do see managers sometimes do. And I think, you know, yeah, there's the rotation aspect you have to think about, obviously the James issue. And I think that was, you know, the main thing that was being shuffled around. That was always going to be hard for him to kind of come up for an obvious solution with. So I think to be able to make the use of five substitutes, you only have to look at the City-Liverpool game, right? And Pep's not making any substitutions to right to the end of the game when you've got this ridiculous bench. Chelsea have a ridiculous bench as well. You know, there is plenty of talented players. So I think if it's not working to be able to say, to to make those changes in-game, first of all, right? You know, to switch, to bring Sterling out and put Ruben at at right wing back and then at half-time to kind of try and shore things up. Like, I think, obviously, that made a lot of sense to do. 
I know this is a Chelsea podcast. So I'm going to have my regular whinge about the five substitute rule here. I mean, it's in the, in the olden days, in the olden days, I'm so old. Um, Jose Mourinho would make two or three substitutions at once, at one stretch, uh, quite early in games, quite often, and or even at half time. And it was like, oh my God, this is what what a brave, bold move that is by the head coach to to make that many changes at once and basically spend all his options. Well, he, at the moment, you can make two at half time. You still got the old number of substitutes left to make in the second half, and and it just. It just benefits the bigger squads. It just benefits the, the bigger clubs and the, and the, the squads of real depth. Um, and, and look, Chelsea supporters all out there will be going, oh, this is brilliant, fantastic. Yeah, and it made a massive difference on Sunday because, I mean, Koulibaly's first involvement in the game is a, a really calm take on the chest and a burst forward. And he just thought, wow, he's suddenly, he, he is here now. They've got a presence on that side of the defence. And he, he, it was another one where he slid in um, a bit later on, I think it was on Bailey and to stop him from sprinting clear. And, and, he, and I know that he picked up a cheap booking later on because he'll always pick up a cheap booking as if he's still playing in Serie A. But, but his presence shored Chelsea up and gave them a bit more stability. But there was no risk involved from Graham Potter. No risk at all in those substitutions. It was because the system is warped towards these clubs with, with the bigger squads and, and, you know, it'll it'll definitely play out. I, I think it will definitely play out over the course of a season. I know Pep rather bucks the trend, and it, and and it's a it's a sort of the exception that almost proves the rule on it. But yeah, anyway, it's just a whinge. Sorry, I'll get the whinge out of the way. Pep, the football <laughs> purist. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or maybe he's a ditherer. Maybe he just doesn't like to change things. I don't know. <laughs> Um, Jesse, before we move on from this game, Chelsea are fourth. They're three points clear of Man United, who are fifth. They're eight behind Arsenal, but with a game in hand. Are you looking over your shoulder or are you looking up at Arsenal? Are, are Chelsea in the title race is basically what I'm asking. I don't think I'd go that far, but I will say because of the pre-Potter terrible run, I just decided to stop looking at the table. Also, because when it's early in the season, it's like, what's what's the point? What's the point? But then when I did, you know, I, I looked at it before before the Villa game and I suddenly thought, oh, yeah, we aren't like that far behind. It's when you look at how close we are to City. I think that's the the real shocker. I mean, Arsenal, I can't really figure out what I think about them at all. So part of me still thinks the wheels will surely have to come up, up at some point. And then maybe you do say Chelsea are in a title race. But I think we're still quite, still feels like we're quite significantly off. And I think right now the thing that would still slightly concern me is that, We've won these games, but not all of these performances have been performances which are like, yeah, I feel really confident we're going to go on this fantastic run of form. You know, I kind of, again, watching this, we've gone to Villa Park in past seasons and, and absolutely battered Villa and lost. And then you go and, and watch this and, and sometimes that's just the way the cookie crumbles, right? But we're certainly in and around it. And that's kind of what happens if you put a, a set of fixtures together like we have at, at this stage in the season. Yeah, well, it's October. You know what that means. It means there's another game just around the corner, specifically at Brentford on Wednesday. We'll preview that after this. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
1930, the year the first World Cup took place, Mickey Mouse made his first appearance in comic form and Pluto was officially discovered and named as a planet. Uh, 1930, in the world of the 24-hour clock, is also the time that Brentford versus Chelsea kicks off here in the UK on Wednesday. Are you is it right me or now? are these preview intros getting worse? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, Dom, this was such a tough game last season that you ended up writing a whole piece about Malang Sar. <laughs> it was, it wasn't, you know, weirdly, looking back at that, it, it wasn't a tough game. It was a tough 20 minutes at the end of the game. Chelsea were in complete control for the first 70 minutes of the match. and should have been more than one goal ahead. But the the last 20 minutes, I'd never seen anything like it. It was, it was, um, it was brutal. And I, I suspect that, that Brentford will generate that kind of momentum going into this fixture as well. They were they were very good, even despite not having as much of the ball against Brighton last Friday. They 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 had the cutting edge. That front three is a real problem, and it will be a problem for Chelsea. I mean, Tony's obviously drawing all the headlines at the moment. He's scoring a a lot of goals, but Embremo um, is is a constant menace. He never stops running. And and Johan Visser is is a, is a good player as well, and and maybe underrated. Um, so you know, if we if we if we thought that Villa gave Chelsea the run around in periods on Sunday, then then they've got to be wary going to to Brentford because that 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 front three can can tear very very good teams apart. Therefore, then Jesse, are we going to see the kind of defensive setup that that finished the Villa the game rather than started it? And are you putting Aspilicueta at right wing back and saying do more defending than attacking, please? I mean, I think the thing with Aspilicueta is you just hope that someone's going to kind of assess how much fitness he'll have for it. But maybe yeah, to at least start with him and then and then see how the game goes. But kind of be be prepared that you might need to switch stuff around. I definitely think. Um, having Koulibaly starting over Kukurea would be would be wise given the way that, that those games went out. And yeah, I totally agree with Dom. The the Brentford front three do look ridiculous, but then at the same time, Brentford do seem to have this real up and down form at the moment. So it feels like one that it's really important, I think, for Chelsea to kind of come out and be on the front foot and not let let those players get a foothold in in the way that we kind of did in the Villa game. You know, Villa aren't a team who should have been filled with confidence, but the way you know players like Bailey and Ings were were looking by the end of the first half was was the total opposite of the way their form should have suggested. And I think maybe again also it will be a game for Jorginho to come back in and perhaps offer a little bit more control in that midfield just to ensure that Brentford aren't getting a, a foothold in in the game and kind of feeling like they can put Chelsea's defence under pressure. Games at Brentford have become opportunities to make statements, haven't they? And, and you can you can draw a lot of conclusions from from matches there because you know you're going to get a very very tough afternoon or evening. You know, Manchester United go there, get absolutely walloped, torn to pieces, and that reflects a sense of crisis at that club at that time. Arsenal go there, win three nil, absolutely flatten that 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 Brentford exuberance that that drives them forward so often. And that has sort of hailed as this statement that they can they can go on and really compete for the title this year. I mean that's that's a hell of a well, it's a hell of a compliment to Brentford. But if Chelsea go there and weather the storm and and impose themselves and, and their quality shows through and they have so much quality, then that was a proper fillip in, in terms of where, where Chelsea are going this season. Mm. Um Ivan Tony, 
Jesse. Don mentions him there. He's got eight goals already in ten league games. Comes to penalties. He's cooler than the other side of the pillow. Would you would you take him at Chelsea? I mean, I think he's probably better than the other player that we've got at number nine right now. I couldn't help. I listened to the Athletics Football Tactics podcast and Michael Cox was talking about Aubameyang's awful passing and then all I could watch in the Villa game was just him passing to no one all the time. Um, yeah, his his first goal against um, Brighton as well was just like a ridiculous piece of skill. And I think that's the thing about Tony that people miss. It's, it's not just the penalties or tap-ins. Like he's a really, really talented player who's got a lot of footballing intelligence. And I guess... It is interesting that there's not kind of been more teams looking to go in for him, especially because there's there's not a huge market for nines around at the moment. But I guess maybe that also kind of speaks to um, he's not always the most consistent player, I think. And I think when he looks very good, he looks he looks great. But you wouldn't always put your money on him to do it week in, week out in a way that maybe a Champions League team is really looking for someone to do. I think his reputation's counted against him a bit, Dom. There was a couple of incidents last season, wasn't there, where he was filmed saying mean things about Brentford. I wonder if clubs look at that and think, mm, is this the kind of character that we need? Well, look, I mean, character assessments definitely come into modern day recruitment and the, the recruitment departments of clubs, yeah, they do make inquiries. They And you don't need to, you don't need to delve particularly deep to to discover things like that. But I don't know. I, th- I think on, on the back of one season in the, in the Premier League and, and how many, how prolific was he actually last season? He, he, he came up with a lofty reputation from the championship and he, he, he did well as a, as a sort of first season in the Premier League, but that, that was a sort of, let's, let's assess how good he is after one year. And then to have this burst of goals now and to get into the England squad as well, albeit not, not feature, which is a, a bit baffling, um, admittedly. But but maybe if he sustains it for another year, that's when the suitors are really out. But I, I tend to agree with Jesse. I, I I suspect that the club that comes in for him eventually, and I'm not saying that Brentford will feel any obligation to sell. They're not. They're not a. You know, they they are a club that will feel that they're going places. But but I suspect it will be the next. It will be the next rung up from from Brentford as opposed to leaping straight from there into the Champions League. So, I mean, you might look at a, a Newcastle United going back there, for example, uh, that that type of level, a club that's ambitious and wants to progress into the next stage. I'm not saying that Newcastle will go in for him because they've obviously spent a lot of money on Alexander Isaac since, uh, since the summer, but that sort of tier club. Um, and then maybe see how he does at that level, Europa League, before judging whether he's a Champions League player in waiting. We'll have to wait and see. Give me a prediction, Jesse. Is it going to be a tight 1-0 Chelsea win again, do you think? Yeah, I feel like I'm a bit worried the wheels might... Not the wheels coming off. That sounds very dramatic. I wouldn't be surprised. I would be happy if we went away with a draw, I think, given the nature of of Brentford and some of our performances recently. Um, I think to kind of control the game and for it to be a draw, I I could see that happening. Momentum's massive, isn't it, Dom, in football? And obviously Chelsea have won five on the bounce now, but there must be a part of Graham Potter that is quite keen for the World Cup to start so he can just have a proper assessment, you know, even if most of his players are not there, but just to kind of what is the state of play at this club? What am I dealing with? How does everything work? Because he hasn't had that. I suspect that Graham Potter's realistic to realise that that's not going to happen. I mean, it's it's almost worth getting into a rhythm of games and, and maintaining the momentum that way and... and 
he'll he'll have to accept that he has to learn on the hoof. He had that sort of bonus extra week ahead of the international break um, around the Queen's death, where he he could look at at players in a way that probably he won't be able to do during the World Cup, as you say, because so many of his squad will be away at the tournament, um, and and th- th- there will be a little period of you know, a second or a third pre-season in this weird, weird campaign that we're having. So, yeah, he, he, he will be able to sort of chart and and and, yeah, and assess assess the, the personnel that he's inherited then um, during that tournament. But but generally speaking, this is, this is what life is as a Chelsea manager. And this is what this run of games is for every club. And it's worse still for the Champions League and Europa League qualifiers. I mean, you have you just have a game every four or five days for... Until the World Cup starts, so it's fantastic they've built up this momentum and and are winning matches and taking that confidence from one game to the next. And he should be very grateful for that. It's 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 funny again also that a change of manager has again provided this little spurt of results at, at Chelsea. I mean it happens all the time. Tuchel went fourteen games in the unbeaten at the start of his tenure, and and now Potter's already up to six, um, and could easily extend that through to to the World Cup if things go their way. Um, but I think we know with, with Chelsea and this group in particular that there, there still could be a blip around the corner. I and mean, after that 14, there were the occasional aberrations like West Brom at home for Tuchel and just have to be wary of that. Mm, well, if that happens at Brentford or not, we will uh, break down the game in our Thursday pod. Right, it was not long after Lucy had hit publish on Thursday's episode that we heard the news that Emma Hayes would be off work for the foreseeable after she needed an emergency hysterectomy. Players from the men's and women's teams wore get well soon. Emma messages on their training kit this weekend. We'd be doing the same were this not a podcaster, but we obviously echo the message. Jesse, how did uh, Chelsea's women's team get on without the head of the table present on Sunday? Yeah, they were playing away to Everton, who are a team who last year everyone expected were going to do really well and they were rubbish. And I think this year we've already seen them kind of go back to their more natural mid-table, upper mid-table form. And they definitely look more sprightly than Chelsea. Obviously, the women's teams are coming off the back of an international break. Chelsea have naturally had players who went away and played, you know, two full 90s, whereas Everton have had more players, you know, at training. And I think that kind of showed early on in the match. But as time went on, Chelsea got more of a foothold in the game. Peniela Harder scored in the, a nice header in the first half. She could have had a hat-trick, to be honest. Um, she was making her first start of the season for us and she was like a real breath of fresh air, I think, in that team. Uh, Kadisha Buchanan continued her pretty inauspicious start to life in a Chelsea shirt and then and there was no goal, but uh, then Harder scored scored a penalty for us, which was um, fascinatingly our fourth different penalty taker in four different WSL games this season, which <laughs> is kind of amazing. Uh, and then there was a fantastic Neve Charles solo goal to to make it 3-1. And in the end, it was really, you know, a comfortable win, I think, in, in what was tricky circumstances for Chelsea, because it will surprise no one that, that Emma Hayes is a big influence um, on that touchline. And I think, you know, Denise Reddy, who's kind of taking over match day duty, she's no wallflower either, but obviously it would have been jarring, I think, for the players not to have had Emma there. And I think maybe you saw a bit more of a laxness that I don't know if you'd have got from certain players if Emma Hayes had been on the touchline. 
Chelsea have a big game against away at PSG on, on Thursday in the in the Champions League group stage, and I think they will be grateful to have just kind of got through this, got the, the three points, um, been able to see harder playing and, and be fit, and then kind of turning their attention to that one. Yeah, so in the WSL, Chelsea won the three teams on nine points, albeit they've played a game more than Arsenal and United above them. Um, what what kind of test of PSG then? It's going to be a, a reunion with Ramona Backman. Is this a kind of match day one away where you bring a point back and you're happy with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, PSG have obviously had a lot of off-pitch drama over the past couple of seasons. They've also lost Marie Antoinette Katoto, who's like their star central striker to an ACL injury during the Euros. And they're definitely not a team who feel particularly settled, um, but they've still got players who who can really hurt Chelsea. I mean, they signed Lika Martins from, from Barcelona and she's made a fantastic start to life in a PSG shirt, which is making me look really stupid because I thought she would flop in France. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think... Listen, really, Chelsea have the quality, I think, to beat PSG. It's a it's a much better squad and I think it's a much better organised team. But PSG Ultras as well, I don't know if anyone remembers, but they famously had to get the police down to King's Meadow because they brought knuckle dusters the last time we played them in the Champions League. So um I'm going to the game and I'm really int- intrigued by what happened. So it won't be a it won't be a nice friendly atmosphere, I think, for Chelsea, that's for sure as well. Wow. Well, just make sure you take your knuckle duster too, um, <laughs> just in case. Um, Jesse's alluded to to the problems that PSG have had off the pitch. There's been some really brilliant reporting on this from Charlotte Harper on The Athletic. I would urge any Athletic subscriber uh, to go and check that out. This incredible tale of uh, Amanita Diallo and the attack on her former teammate, Kira Hamraoui. It's one of the most amazing stories in football for the last few years. So do go and have a read of that. Uh, elsewhere this weekend, the men's under-21s had a remarkable game with Man United at Kingsmeadow. They were 3-1 up. When Cesare Cassidy, who had scored earlier in the game, was sent off in stoppage time, Shola Shoretire then scored on 90 plus 5 and 90 plus 6 to snatch a point for the Red Devils. No time for Chelsea to dwell on that, though. They go to Lake Norian in the Football League Trophy on Tuesday night, the final game of the group stages. And a win would see Chelsea through to the knockout rounds, which is not looking likely for many of the other Premier League under 21 sides. So that would be a feather in the cap for the Blues. Uh, Dom, have you got anything that you'd like to plug before we go? Uh, I've got a piece that features a bit of a Chelsea element. I'm, I'm doing a sort of an explainer of, of how and how players adapt to playing in a back three as opposed to a back four. Obviously, Graham Potter seems to switch every 15 minutes within games. Um, but it, it, there's a lot of Thiago Silva, a bit of Reese James, and even a, a mention of the uh, former Chelsea player Antonio Rudiger in there. I think that's coming out on, on Tuesday. Um, and then a, a piece ahead of the weekend, I imagine, looking at the various permutations available to Gareth Southgate for the World Cup in the absence, likely absence, of both Rhys James and Carl Walker. Lovely stuff. Uh, also on The Athletic, you can read Simon working out how Chelsea might be able to double their revenue after Jose Feliciano revealed that that was the intention last week and the aforementioned Liam Peace on the Kepa redemption story. Um, Jesse, what would you like to plug? don't really know I don't really have anything <laughs> to plug <laughs> um <laughs> yeah I'm obviously off to, to Paris this week um and then I will be going to potentially the even more difficult match of Brighton away um which I actually I, I'll plug I've got an interview with Victoria Williams coming out um about uh why Brighton are so good at 
taking points off Chelsea. They're the only team, women's team, to have taken points off Chelsea over the past three seasons. It's something City haven't been able to do, Arsenal haven't been able to do. So, yes, I'll be finding out from Victoria how they get that done before I inevitably go and watch us lose 1-0 there. Jesse, when you go to Paris, uh, maybe pop to Lyon on a day trip, which is what uh, our producer decided to do. Paris is obviously not good enough for Lucy. She has to go to Lyon, the other side of France, just for the day. Well, I actually am, because handily, Arsenal are playing away in Lyon the day before. Great city, Lyon. Straight out of common doubleheader. Done it. Uh, you can also ask Victoria Williams about her nickname being Trev because apparently her dad looks a lot like Trevor McDonald. Um, ben Whelan, <laughs> her former teammate, told me that last season. Uh, here's an update, by the way, on Kepper. I've just had a tweet from David Priest, esteemed voice on goalkeeping coaching, Sutherland goalkeeper coach last season. He simply says, Ben Roberts is working his magic already. So there you go, Jesse. That's the difference that a goalkeeper coach can make. Um, I love the fact that this is one of those random things about football, right, Dom? That ben Roberts in Chelsea folklore is the guy who got the ball smashed past him by Roberto Di Matteo 42 seconds into the 1997 <laughs> FA Cup final. And now... We're crediting him with turning Kepa's career around. It's a funny old game, as someone would say. He did come really, really highly regarded. I mean, he did some fantastic work at Brighton. Uh, so it shouldn't really be a massive surprise that he's made an impact already. But I think it's more down to Kepa seizing that chance and remembering just how good he actually is. And it's good to see. Not good of your Mendy, obviously, but there you go. Yeah, no. That was this week's Kappa Lovin'. We'll see if it continues on Thursday. Join us for that if you can. For now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. The Athletic.